Hello, this is A.R. Bernard, and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So, thanks for tuning in. It's good to be home. I've been traveling and ministering, and because you're willing to share me, share me with others, I get to go out and bring the word. Because you all are willing to share me with others, because you all are willing to share me with others, I get to go out and they get to experience what you experience here at Christian Cultural Center. Amen? What you say, Pastor, don't be away too long. All right, I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you. Praise the Lord. Well, um, some exciting news. Last week, the full city council voted unanimously for our development project. And it made the newspapers, of course, because we are bringing a 100%, to quote our local district leader, our councilman, Charles Barron, 100% affordable affordable housing. And that will address um, working class for uh, those who were formerly homeless and also middle class. And um, we're excited about this development. If you don't know about it, look up Urban Village. Innovative Urban Village, uh, you can Google that, and you'll get the lowdown on the project. It's been a five-year process to get to where we are, and the toughest thing is, interestingly enough, not building it, but getting it approved, because we had to go through such a process of adjusting and changing and rezoning and, and all of that. But I will tell you, the process drives the outcome. And too often we want the outcome, but we don't want the process. Turn your neighbor, say, he's preaching good already. How many know that it's your commitment to the process that will take you to the outcome? So we're grateful to the Lord for the process, and we're looking at shovels in the ground sometime the end of next year, um, prayerfully, you know, if not the beginning of 2024. But uh, we are excited about the phases that we'll go through. It's going to take seven to nine years to build it. And uh, it's going to be built in phases. But it's going to bring something special to East New York, our community, our city. And it is now a model that is being looked at across the country. So, hey, it's wonderful to create a model that the whole country is looking at. Amen. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support of the CCC vision. Thank all 20 of you who just clapped. clapped. Praise the Lord. Now, I have some good news. It all depends on how you take it. But one of the things that we've learned through COVID is greater efficiency, greater effectiveness uh, in terms of the use of our resources, whether it's um, financial resources or manpower resources. And we're still experiencing the effects of COVID. And, you know, people are getting COVID again and people are nervous. You know, we've come a long way from where we were in uh, 2020 when this hit um, the world, and especially the United States, but especially here in New York, because we were the epicenter, if you remember. So we experienced a lot of the extremes, and it was quite revealing of our systems and structures and their inability to handle fairly the needs of all the citizens of our, our city, our state, and even our, our, our nation. So in that light of greater efficiency, greater effectiveness, we are consolidating the services until such time that we will return to multiple services. 
Um, we're consolidating the services starting next Sunday. So we'll be having one service in person on Sunday. We will continue having live streaming and replay of the services, the service, but we'll be having one service uh, next Sunday, which is the first Sunday in December. And based upon popular demand, not popular with you, that service will be <laughs> that service will be at 10 a.m. Um, so we sort of a compromise. The second service is saying, "Oh, I can do a half an hour earlier. That's okay." Eight o'clock service is saying, "What?" Um, but I will tell you, even volunteers and people serving and whatnot, it's not. We don't have the abundance that we had at one time. Um, that's a reality, folks. So it takes a lot of people to make this happen on a Sunday. You come, you sit down, you enjoy the, the air conditioning during the sum, summer and the heat during the winter and wonderful and, you know, but you don't realize it takes a lot of people to make all of this programming work. And um, most churches across the country are experiencing the same issues when it comes to volunteer base and, you know, people resources, human resources. So um, as not to burn out the volunteers that we do have, we want to be sensitive and, and cut back. So thank you for your level of maturity and appreciation for our leadership and the decisions that we have to make as leaders. Uh, sometimes that they're not always popular, but how many know being a leader is making unpopular decisions? Yeah, and, and standing with that, because if you're afraid to do that, then you can't be a leader. So, praise the Lord. What time is service next week? You know it too well. <laughs> Ten o'clock. Say it a little nicer, please. What time is service next week? Thank you. That's encouraging. 10 o'clock. Okay. Praise the Lord. So, and, and you look, it, it's, a, it's a, still a, a, a frame where you can still get to church early and still have the rest of your day and all of that. You know, it's amazing because um, the generation uh, X, Gen Xers, baby boomers, great generation before that, for generations when it came to faith, in our society, when you became a person of faith, your faith became central to your life, and you organize your life around the centrality of your faith. So you didn't ask whether you were going to church on Sunday. That was a given. What you did was arrange the rest of your day around going to church, or if you had to work, because some people work night shift, come straight to church, some people leave church, go to work, you know, um, that's, that's right. So we, we arrange our life around our faith and faith experience as a center. This generation, they try to fit their faith ritual into their lifestyle. And there's a difference between making it the center and then organizing your life around it and organizing your life and trying to fit it in. There, there's a difference. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, and, and that's millennials and uh, what, Gen Z and alpha generation now that's emerging. Their relationship with faith is so different. And, and part of it is because they have so many platforms by which they can access faith and spiritual nurturing and the faith experience. But the reality is you can't compare being in a physical location and the dynamics of that physical location. That's real. But thank God, especially for all of you and welcome who are joining us, you know, across the, from across the country and around the world. Our internet campus, our internet membership has expanded and continues to grow exponentially. And that's true for many, many churches that are growing. So, you know, it culture changes 
and human nature adjusts to those changes, and we have to also adjust to those realities. Because if you don't manage continuity and change, you, will, you, you won't experience longevity. You'll die. Because longevity is the key to greatness, and the, the secret of longevity is managing continuity and change. How many know that change is the only constant in life? Right. <clears throat> change takes place whether you want it or like it or not. And change is always happening in some way. We're always going through changes. And managing continuity and change is critical. Um, knowing, and the secret to that is knowing what to change and what to continue. Knowing what to change and what to continue. Not just in ministry, it's true in business, it's true in relationships, it's true in marriage, it's true in every human endeavor. The wisdom is identifying, knowing what should I change and what should I not change, what should I continue. Because if you change what you should continue, you'll lose your identity. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) If you change what you should continue, you will lose your identity. CCC was birthed out of a very specific Christ-in-culture identity. And this is a teaching ministry. We're not going to change that. We're going to continue to grow that, develop that, add to that. So knowing what not to change is important. Knowing what you should continue is important. But also what, knowing what needs to be changed, because certain things need to be changed, right? You adjust. And that's very important. So if you, if you change what you should continue, you'll lose your identity. If you continue what you should change, you'll become irrelevant. You'll become irrelevant. And Jesus said, when the salt loses its flavor, its savor, it is good for nothing but to be what? Trampled underfoot, cast out. And in many instances, churches are becoming irrelevant because they refuse to change what they need to change. And some are so busy changing, they've lost their identity. They don't know who they are anymore. I had the opportunity of having breakfast with Bishop Desmond Tutu um, gosh, years ago, and we were talking, and I asked him, Bishop, I said, how many have heard of Bishop Desmond Tutu? Okay, good. That's an important name for you to know. So I said, Bishop, how is, what is the state of the church in South Africa? And he said that, and you may have heard me say this before, he said that the church is in crisis. Of course, I asked why. He said, well, during apartheid, the church knew what it was against. So it had a sense of purpose, identity, right? He said, but after apartheid, the church didn't know what it's for. And that's not good for the church to be only defined by what it's against. What are we for? What do we stand for? And that's the the enduring identification of the church. Why did Jesus create it? Why did he establish it? What are we here for? That's important. So no matter what causes we may take up along the way in the name of justice, which is something important to the church, right? We can't forget who we are. And there are churches that have lost their identity and they've become something else other than what Jesus intended. Does that make sense to you? And what is true for a church organization is true for you. In, in, a, in, a, in a culture where people are reinventing themselves every day, especially celebrities. There are celebrities 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, and, and you see this reinventing of themselves in order to keep up with a rapidly changing culture and environment. So those are the announcements with a little commentary. Let's get into the word. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 4? 
And this is going to blend into the signs of the times, which is what we're talking about. But let me, if I were to give this today's message under signs of the times, subheading, this is what I would give it. What's the title of today's message? And I'm not talking about a country in Europe. It would be spelled differently. Hungry. Hungry. You got that? Hungry. How many of you have ever been hungry? That's a loaded question, you know why? Because many of us have never really been hungry the way others in this world have been hungry. So Romans 15, and I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible, if we can get that up on the screen. Romans 15, 4. Romans 15, verse Amplified. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the what? Scriptures, we might have hope and overflow with, come on, confidence in his promises. I want to read that again. That's good stuff. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, King James language, for our learning. So that through what? Through what? Come on. Through what? Endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope and overflow with confidence in his promises. So this essentially is talking about the scriptures. And it says, for whatever was written in earlier times, the scriptures. And remember, when this particular text in Romans was written, the Bible as we know it and have it today was not available yet. The Bible that we have in its form with the books all set up, books of the New Testament, books of the Old Testament, all right, the way we have it, came along, all right, several hundred years after Jesus. So in the early church, what was passed on was oral tradition. And then letters written, and the Gospels written. And over time, it was put together into the form that we now have and experience. And depending upon whether it's Protestant or Catholic, there are certain books that are included and certain books that are not included. But there was a process called canonization, determining what books would be part of the whole that we call Bible. And Bible really means collection of books. Collection of books. So when this writ was written, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans and the church at Rome. He was pointing back to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And how many of you read the Old Testament? Anyone read Genesis yet? Let me just check. Okay, good. You're on your way. So the apostle is pointing to the stories, the history, the poetry, all of the content of the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the books of wisdom. And he says that these things were written for our instruction. The objective, to give us hope, to give us confidence 
in the promises of God. And when you read the Old Testament, you are discovering promises made and promises kept. I'm going to try that again. When you read the Old Testament, you're reading promises made and promises kept. And of course, the ultimate promise kept was the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming of the one that was prophesied about by the law of Moses, by the prophets, by the Psalms. Stories, history, stories of people's encounter with God and God at work in human history. So the Old Testament is filled with what? Stories. Filled with what? Stories. Stories. About people's encounter with God. How many read of some of those encounters with God? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the patriarchs, Deborah, I mean, Esther, I mean, just people encountering God. So these things were written for our instruction, for our learning, so that we could from it get what? Hope. So we can experience what? Hope. To give us what? Hope. And confidence. What are two things? Hope. And confident. So the things that are written in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is designed to give us hope and confidence in God's promises. Well, what are we to be instructed in? What does it teach us? If I could, you know, have an aerial view. It teaches us, as we read the Scriptures, it teaches us about the nature of God. It teaches us about the power of God. It teaches us about the plans and purposes of God. It teaches us about human nature. It teaches us about good and evil. It gives us a narrative of how the world began, how things went wrong, and how God is fixing it. So as we read the scriptures, and it's not just the Old Testament, now we have the New Testament that we could read and still get from the New Testament the same thing, hope and confidence, right? So the scriptures give us what? We learn about what? The nature of God, the plans and purposes of God, human nature, good and evil. It's a narrative. And, and your worldview, how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see other people, how you see everything, the universe around you, comes out of whatever narrative you choose to inform you. Your beliefs, your assumptions, your choices are all based upon a narrative. So what is God like, his nature? What is he like? God is love, God is life, God is light, God is holy, out of his holiness comes his justice, God is patient, God is kind, God is a God of judgment. How many got all of that? Out of reading the scripture. How many became familiar with God's power reading the scriptures? Yeah. 
Yeah. We read of creation that he created with his what? Word. God said, let there be, and it came into existence. So the power of God dividing the Red Sea, miracles, exercising his power and influence over the created order. We also discover God's plans and purposes from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 15, God issues a promise that there will be a male messianic figure who will be born of a woman into the world and be and bring the liberation and salvation of all humanity and reconcile back to God. Right there in Genesis. So from the time, from the moment the fall took place, God already has a plan in place. Did you hear what I just said? From the moment you mess up, God's got a plan. Instead of screaming and crying and carrying on and kicking, hey, what was me? I messed up, Lord. What's the plan? I mean, God has a plan to make a way where there seems to be no way. The redemption of humanity and the restoration of Eden. Eden not as a place, but as a condition that he wants for humanity. Everything was provided for Adam and Eve in Eden. It was beautiful, right? There was no lack. There was no deficiency. No tears, no pain, no crying, none of that. So his rest, the restoration of Eden, or that condition for humanity. The redemption of humanity and the restoration of the conditions of Eden. And please understand Eden. Don't start looking for a garden somewhere. It is true that it was a location. But the idea of Eden was that God creates the earth, and then he wants to have a relationship with the earth and its inhabitants, so he creates a place on the earth called Eden where he and this new humanity would meet. So Eden represents the coming together of heaven and earth, God and humanity. That's what it represents. And that's where the devil wanted to destroy that relationship right up front. I mean, oh, we discover human nature when we read the scripture. How many read about those humans in the Old Testament? How many read about those humans in the If you haven't read, you need to find out what those folks did. They were something else. See, you pick up the newspaper, the Daily News, the Post, the Times, whatever you pick up, all right, and you, what are you reading about? What are you reading about? Come on. We record the things that humans do now. It's on social media. I mean, it's all over the place. What are we reading about every day? Come on. You know what the news is? What did the humans do now? Turn your neighbor and say, he's talking about somebody you know. Come on. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Yeah. And when you pick up that newspaper, you can't believe some of the things the humans do. Good and bad. When they do good, it shocks us. When they do bad, we're shaking our heads because, yeah, that's it. That's those humans. So when you read, how many ever read, read uh, in the Old Testament where a man, in reaction to his wife getting raped, cuts her body up and distributes the pieces to incite war and retribution? You didn't get that far? Look, you got to read the story so when you come to church, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what the preacher's talking about. If you don't read it, you're not going to know what the preacher's talking about. You're not going to have any reference whatsoever. Some of you looking at me like, they did what? <laughs> you got to read the book. You read it, we explain it up here. The ministers come, the teachers come, we explain it. That's our gift, right? But you got to read it. 
You got to give something to the Holy Spirit to bring back to your remembrance. You're walking around saying, I don't remember anything. Well, you never put anything in there. You got to read it. This is Christianity 101. Discipleship 101. Human nature. An interesting thing, you read in, in the scriptures human nature about people who know God and people who don't know God. And sometimes the people who know God and the people who don't know God act the same. Guess what? They're doing some of that today. Sometimes there's no distinction. Sometimes there's a great distinction between them. How many discovered good and evil in reading the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah. We see good. We see evil. We see love. We see life. We see light. We see death. We see war. I mean, that book is amazing. An amazing collection. Written by some 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, preserved and handed to us. Only God could do something like that. And you know humans didn't write it because they, they would have only written the best of themselves. You know how we are. We touch it up a bit, you know. Embellish, change things around. We don't want to make ourselves look too bad. No, but that was raw. This is it. So when we read the scriptures... We learn these things. And what I want to point to today is we also learn about how God interacted with the people who encountered him. That's very, very important. How God interacted. But the people who encountered him. How many know that Moses first met Yahweh through a burning bush? Did you read that part? How he encountered Yahweh? How he encountered God, Jehovah. God decides, you know, I'm going to introduce myself to this man. I got plans for him. So I'm going to set a bush on fire and it won't be consumed. Did it work? Got his attention. What did Moses say? I must, I like the way they do it in the movie. I must now go see You heard the music, right? And the choir singing. I must now go see. We know how to really dress it up. And he's shocked. I mean, number one, notice God tapped into Moses' nature, which was curious. He was also fearless. Because maybe another person who saw that bush would have said, got to go. <laughs> Turn your neighbor and say, he's talking about somebody else you know. <laughs> Famous line from a, 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 a horror movie. <laughs> he's, in, he's in the house and he's hearing all these things. Things start moving and, and then he hears, get out. <laughs> Gone. But then there's some people say, who said that? <laughs> Bring in the equipment. We're going to find this person. Then they make a weekly TV show out of it. And you watch. I can't understand how in six years with all the technology we have, they haven't found Bigfoot. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't buy it anymore. And people still watch How God interacted with these people tells us a lot about God and about how God works. Because if we're looking at their experience to learn from them, then it means that their experience is quite similar to our experience and our experience is quite similar to 
their experience. So it helps us understand how God is dealing with us. Let me give you another passage of scripture in this vein. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. A little different, amplified. Now these things happened to them as an example and warning to us. They were written for our instruction to admonish and equip us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're the anchor crew, folks. We're the wrap-up. We are in the last days. Right? And the last days started when? On the day of Pentecost. The last days were ushered in. This is a fulfillment. These, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So we've been in the last days and say, well, pastor, it's been 2,000 years. That's a lot of days. Well, put it in perspective. One day with the Lord is as a 1,000 years. And a thousand years just like one day. Just to put it in perspective in terms of time. We don't experience time the same, right? And imagine the fact that if we get into a spacecraft, leave this planet, all right? We no longer, and we're out of space, we no longer experience time the way the people on the planet do here. It changes. Literally, it changes how you experience time when you're out in space, as opposed to being here on the planet. So we look back, we read about how God did things, how he interacted with people. So what's the name of this message? There are different types of hunger. There's physical hunger that you're aware of. Your, your stomach starts growling, right? Hunger for food, the sustenance. And there is emotional hunger. How many are familiar with emotional hunger? Yeah, hunger can come in that way where there's a hunger for approval, for acceptance, for sense of belonging, for... Intimacy, affirmation, love, bonding, a hunger for safety and security. These are all emotional needs that we have, and we can have an emotional hunger. And if you don't know how to manage your emotions, you can seek to satisfy that emotional hunger in a way that makes things worse instead of better. It's like food, right? You're hungry for food. You can satisfy that hunger with the wrong things that can actually hurt you and not help your hunger. That's reality. So there's physical hunger. There's emotional hunger. There's intellectual hunger. The, the desire, the strong desire to, to, for knowledge, for wisdom, for understanding. There's that intellectual hunger. And there's spiritual hunger. The hunger uh, and desire to know and experience God to know and experience God. How many have ever experienced all, all four of those hungers? You've, how many have been hungry physically, of course, hungry emotionally, hungry intellectually or mentally, and hungry spiritually? Yeah, spiritual hunger. It's interesting. Um, there was a scientific study that was done with mice. You know, they're always using mice to find out how people are. And in this particular experiment, what they did was to see what motivation is stronger, fear or hunger. How many say fear is the stronger motivation? Fear. Raise your hand if you think fear is the stronger motivation. How many feel hunger is the stronger motivation? How many of you read the study? Okay. Well, what they did... What, because, they, you know, you're all, we're always asking what motivates people to do things, right? We want to know why did they do motive, why did they do that? 
And what's the strongest motivation? Love? No, not even love is not the strongest motivation. They found, they, so they put these mice in an open space. They made sure the mice were good and hungry, all right? They starved them for a few days. And they put them in open space where there was food and a fox. Now, how many understand the relationship between a fox and mice? Okay, one is food for the other. Open space, mice, food, fox. What did the mice do? What did the mice do? What did the mice do? They went after the food. In spite of the fear of the fox, in spite of the risk, the motivation that came from hunger was greater than their fear of the fox. Which means that if you get hungry enough, you'll take risks in order to satisfy that hunger in spite of how fearful the risk may be. Turn your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. Hunger, hunger is our strongest motivator. They found it stronger than thirst. I thought it was interesting that Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days, and at the end, he was hungry. Didn't say he was thirsty. He was what? Hungry. And what did the devil capitalize on right away? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Satisfy your hunger with your power. Right? So the devil played on that. They found that hunger is stronger than the need for social interaction. We're talking about humans now. It's stronger than fear. The hungry mice, in spite of the risk of the fox, they were willing to risk their lives in order to eat. So since hunger is the strongest motivator, hunger, when it's activated, can suppress all of the other motivators. In the case of the mice, it suppressed fear because the satisfaction of the hunger was more powerful. We will risk our lives, our reputation, we will risk a lot if we're hungry enough. Come on. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? How many have ever had to risk in order to satisfy hunger? And I don't, I'm not just talking about physical hunger. I'm just talking about things in life, situations and circumstances that you faced. And what was your concern? Hunger was the motivation, and the satisfaction of that hunger was your concern. Turn your neighbor and say, neighbor, we will risk our lives and reputation in order to eat. When I think of the Exodus story as we look at the Old Testament and its stories, when I think of the Exodus story in the Bible, it's a story of God moving a people from a slave mentality to a free mentality. How many know there's a difference? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to move them from being the tail to being what? From being beneath to being, from being the lender and becoming the what? Bower from being the victim and becoming the victor. Yeah? So he, God, needed to move these people out of that slave mentality to a mentality of freedom. Move them from victim to victor, from borrower to lender. Let me get that right. Not lender to borrower. We got enough of those. Amen. 
See, I, you know, that's what I love about you. I can look at your face and know when I made a mistake. From borrower to lender, right? Above and not beneath, head and not the tail. So if you read the Exodus story, and if you understand that it's the liberation of a people from a state of mind, a state of existence, then you have to read how did the people react to that and how did God lead them out of that slave mentality? Right? You look at it. You read the story. I remember, at one point when things got tough for them in the, in, out in the wilderness, they said, we were better off in Egypt. How could you conclude that you were better off in, in bondage, in slavery? It's because you're discovering that freedom is not as easy as you thought. Especially when you're a slave, everything's being done for you. When you're free, you got to do stuff for yourself. Turn your neighbor and say, neighbor, that's good preaching again. So as I, as I examined this story and, and, and looked, at this, looked at it in the light of, of, of motivation, how did God interact with these people that he was trying to move in a certain direction to change their way of thinking? And let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Reading from the Amplified Bible. Every commandment that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to what? To do. So he was giving them something to do. Commandments are something to do. So that you may what? Live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember what? Always all the ways which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. In other words, <clears throat> I want you to pay attention to everything you've gone through. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. I want you to learn from it. I want you to pay attention to it. Has led you these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might what? Humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. And God wasn't trying to find out what was in their heart. He was trying to get the people to understand what was in their heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. He humbled you. How? How? Not on my face. Hopefully it's on the screen. When I read these words, first time I took a hard look at these words. God allowed them to be hungry. Remember what we're looking at? How God interacted with the people he wanted to change. He wanted to move them from what? A slave mentality a victim mentality, right, to victors, to make them the head and not the tail. And part of the process, what did he have to do with these people? Oh, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. What did he have to do with them? He had to motivate them by allowing them to get so hungry that they were willing to take risk in order to enter the promised land. You don't enter blessing without risk. If you think that it's just going to come to you just like that without a struggle, you're missing it. You're missing it. All good things are upstream, and sometimes you got to paddle hard. You can get fancy and get yourself a motorboat, but even the motor has to work harder going upstream. Look at this. Look at this, folks. Just look at this. How did God work with them? He allowed them to get what? Which means he could have fed them. But one of the ways that he motivated these people 
to change was to allow them to get hungry enough to change. And I will tell you, some of you will not change for the better until you get hungry enough for that change. Why have things not changed? Why are things continuing? Because you're just not hungry enough for the change. You're just not hungry enough for what you claim you want. And you can sit in a circumstance and situation and complain and ask God, why, why am I here? Why, why, why? He's waiting for you to get hungry enough so he can bring you what you need. He fed them in the wilderness. Oh, man, what is that wrong with that clock? They, you know, I go away, come back, the clock is saying the same thing. How many understand what I'm talking about here, folks? You want economic change? He'll allow you to get hungry enough to start doing the things you need to do in order to experience economic change in your life. You want relational change? He will allow you to get hungry enough for you to begin to make the changes in your own life that will affect your relationships. You want spiritual change, your hunger for the knowledge and, and to, to know and experience God, you're not hungry enough yet. And there are times when God will allow circumstances and situations just because he knows it's going to make you good and hungry. Now, get this. Get this. He fed them manna. They complained about it. They wanted leeks, garlic. How would he have to train, change them? It wasn't just making them hungry for food. He was trying to change their diet. In other words, he was trying to change what they were used to eating. The most difficult things in order to get you to live a healthy life physically is to change what you eat. It's not just feeding you. You got to understand, God wasn't just making them hungry so that they would want food. No, he was making them hungry enough that they would accept the food that he wanted to give them. You know what manna, manna means? Somebody read about the manna in the wilderness. Manna means, what is this? Literally, that's what it means. What is this? It was some kind of a wafer. There was no seasoning. And you know us folks like seasoning. We'd be screaming for the pepper sauce. Because more important than the taste experience was the nutritional value that it brought. But they were caught up on the other food. So understand, folks, this was more than just making them hungry for food. It was changing their diet, seizing their appetite and shifting that appetite for those things that are going to make them better. You cannot want to be the head and eat like a tail. I'm just saying. You cannot want to be the lender and you keep eating like a borrower. You can't be the victor 
keep eating like a victim. What am I talking about? Food? No. Jesus said, take heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. Because just as you are what you eat physically, you are what you eat mentally, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. And the devil will try to feed you bad food because he knows how it's going to impact. He knows the outcome of you eating bad food. And how many know bad food always tastes better? might try to give you good food for a good diet. You say, can't you do something with this so I can eat it? <laughs> Pull out the sauce. Ketchup. You can tell, you know, it says a lot about a person. They go to one of the top steak restaurants, order a steak, and then put ketchup on it. Pasta, you're talking about me. <laughs> I'll take it a step further. Even A1. Because the steak is done well and done right. You shouldn't have to put anything on it. You should be able to eat it just like that. But when you're convinced that you cannot eat it without, then you'll kill a good steak. And so it is with life. Because what's good for you, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, doesn't always taste good. You have to change your taste. But that's why they say if you're really going to change your diet, you need to start with a fast. Because the period of fasting gets all of the tastes out of you. You know, lettuce has a taste to it. Some people don't have, they don't know that. They don't know. You can actually taste lettuce. Some of you never got an opportunity to taste it. <laughs> you just down it so fast. My point in the time that I don't have left is this. God loves us that much. That in order to change us, he will allow us to experience times of famine, deficiency, inadequacy. And he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. He allowed Paul to continue in his deficiency and he was conscious of it, hated it, despised it because of who he was as an individual. Why? So that he could feed on God's grace and not his own abilities. Sometimes God has to get you good and hungry in order to change what you've been eating. Not just physically, but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. I think I got my point across. Those words are going to ring out in your soul now. He allowed you to get hungry. Because it's the most powerful motivator. In fact, if you're ever in a situation and talk about what you don't eat, you get hungry enough. You lead it. <laughs> Come on, isn't it true? No, you want? No, I, I don't need that. Mm -mm. Get good and hungry. You'll be asking for salt, pepper, a fork, and knife. God will use the reality, all of human reality and human experience, in order to get through to us because He loves us that much that he will waste nothing but use everything just to get us to change for the better.
Come on, let's all stand. Yeah, come on, let's give God a hand clap offering for his word. Now, if all you people show up next week at the 10 o'clock service, we'll be back to two services the following Sunday. I'm just... <laughs> Look, we're testing it out. We don't know. We're just trying to find our way and to be good stewards with all of God's resources. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father... Thank you for your word today. There have been times when we've been hungry and we didn't understand why. Sometimes we were busy rebuking the devil and it was you all along. Allowing us to be hungry enough to change what needs to be changed in our life. Especially to change what we've been eating. What have, we been, what have we been filling our minds with? What have we exposed our emotions to? Oh Lord, we are what we eat. Thank you for your word today to remind us that you will use circumstances, situations, even deprivation to get through to us for our own good. Thanks for loving us so much that you let us go through stuff, never leaving us, never forsaking us, but being there with us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to be afraid because you're with us. Your staff to correct us Sorry, your rod to correct us, your staff to lead us out. Thank you, Father. Let this word soak into us, deep inside of us, so we can appreciate everything that comes our way and see that it's either sent by you or definitely will be used by you. We love you and bless you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand clap offering. Give him some praise. Come on, give him some praise. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Did you get a word today? Thank God for his word. He sent his word to heal and deliver us from destruction. And if you're in this place today, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you are watching, joining us from wherever you are across the country or around the world, God loves you. He has a plan for you. But you can't discover it without a relationship with him. And Jesus Christ came lived here like one of us, experienced what we experience, died on that cross, and then rose from the dead. And if you believe that he died on that cross for you and rose from the dead for you, that's salvation. And you confess him as your Lord and Savior, that's salvation. That's new life. That's eternal life. Bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love, your life, and your light, the truth that you brought through Jesus Christ. And while every head is bowed, every eye closed, if you're in this building today and you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Just lift your hand high wherever you may be. I want to pray for you. And if you are joining us online, and you've never made that prayer, I want to lead you in that prayer. So let's all join in. Say, God, I thank you for this opportunity 
to open my heart to your love, your life, and your light through Jesus Christ. I believe that Christ came. He lived and walked among us. He died on the cross for my sins, but he rose from the dead for my justification. So through him, I have forgiveness. Through him, I have new life. I confess him as my personal Lord and Savior. And all that I have, all that I am, I surrender to him today. And I begin this new life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me your ways. Thank you for making it so simple. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand clap offering. Praise the Lord. If you prayed that prayer with us online, there is some information on the bottom of your screen. Please call that number or text. Let our staff know so that they can give you some next steps. This is a whole journey. How many have enjoyed this journey so far? Praise the Lord. This is my last stop. There are people who are still looking. Uh-uh. This is it. I found it. I found it right here in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. So next week, 10 a.m., right here. Praise the Lord. And your usual seat may not be available. <laughs> so get here early. Come on, let's say something good to leave this place, but never God's presence. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we proclaim it, and we're seeing it come to pass. God bless you. I love your family. Good to be back with you. Have a wonderfully blessed week in the Lord. Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard Podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation. Make sure subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that I'm doing. Again, thank you and God bless. Music.